uh, if you could turn in your Bibles or uh, in the bulletin to our Bible reading for today, Galatians 6, verse 11 through 18. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is God's word. Thank you, Jessica. Just for the record, um, I think Peeps is cool. All right, we are uh, in our, oh, just so you know, uh, if you, we, we often after the sermon have just a brief time of um, question and answer for anybody to ask something that they need about, you know, if they want clarification for something or go a little deeper into something. If you want to ask questions, you can, of course, raise your hand and ask your question, but you could also uh, text me. My phone number is right there in the, in the bulletin. Uh, you can text your question to that number, and we'll try to get to it after after the message. We are um, we are still in Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, this is our last Sunday in Galatians. Uh, I hope you've appreciated uh, walking through this letter and listening to Paul just hammer out the implications of this radical gospel message that he has been. Uh, teaching the Galatian church and the importance and the centrality of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to that gospel message and the sufficiency of that work. That's what this is all about, right? He's been hammering on how a person's salvation is found not in any other thing than the work of another person on their behalf. And that person, of course, is Jesus Christ in his death on the cross in our place. And Paul's been unpacking this and unpacking sort of the implications of this for these five and a half some chapters now, or six and a half, I should say, some chapters now. And now he's wrapping up. He's giving his sort of closing arguments, you could say, right? He's summarizing and Paul is a great speaker, he's a great writer, he's a great preacher. He knows that the thing that people remember most is the last thing you say. Every good communicator knows that. And so the Apostle Paul uh, 
goes back to the heart of the matter and the core issue that he wants to address because he knows that the last thing he writes about is the thing that these Galatians are really going to hold on to and take home over the long haul. And he emphasizes this main point. Notice that he says in verse 11, he says, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, when you get an email and a person puts a portion of it in all caps, they want to really emphasize that part. I heard actually that means you're yelling. Is that true? That's supposed to be what that means? If I do that to you, that's not what I mean, just so you know. I'm not yelling at you if I all cap something in an email. It's, it's meant, it, I'm just me. well, maybe I am yelling because I'm trying to emphasize my point. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here when he says, see, look, large letters I write as I, you, you, if you've ever been in, in, in letter, if you've ever written a letter, have you ever had this when you've been writing something and you get, you get really excited about something, your handwriting starts getting kind of more erratic and messy because you can't get those words on the page as fast as, as you want to because you're really into whatever it is you're writing? This is what's going on with the Apostle Paul. He's saying, pay attention. If you've been nodding off up until now, Paul says, I want you to wake up and listen very carefully. So let me just say to you, if you've been nodding off for the last 11 weeks <laughs> uh, as we've been going through this letter together, pay attention. There is nothing more important, the Apostle Paul is saying, nothing more relevant than this issue, the cross of Jesus Christ. It is everything. Don't forget that. And maybe you're saying, well, that's, you know, Paul's using hyperbole, he's being dramatic, and you... Pastor Paul, you're kind of hyperbolic and dramatic too, so it makes sense that you would do that as well. But notice, Paul doesn't just, he doesn't just say, look at the letters I'm using. He also is very personal, right? He says, I am writing this to you. He says, may I never boast. This is in my own hand. He's, he, even further down, he says, if anyone wants to cause me trouble, I bear on my body the scars of Christ. He says, he says he's opening up himself to his people. He's letting them into his own heart and his own soul because he is desperate for them to understand the core of what he has been preaching and teaching and giving his entire life to for all these many, many years. He even uses the most powerful non-negative uh, construction in the Greek language, for your interest's sake, when he says... In verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The King James Version just says, God forbid I boast in the cross, in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a, this is a negative construction that can, it's the most powerful, most, yeah, come on brain. It is the most emphatic negative construction in the Greek language. The point is this, Paul really, really, really wants us to listen up this morning as he explains once again one more thing, the centrality of the cross in these few verses. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three things together. We're going to look at the absolute indispensability of the cross of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at, secondly, the inevitable offense of the cross of Jesus Christ, but then we're also going to look at the very end, the glorious effects of the cross of Jesus Christ together. Those are the three things we're going to talk about this morning from this text. Let's have a look. Paul says in verse 14, first of all, 
the indispensability of the cross of Jesus Christ. He says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in that statement, does something quite remarkable, actually. Here's what, here's what Paul is doing. Let me ask you this question. Do you want to know what makes you tick? Do you want to know why you are the way you are? Why you do the things you do? Why you sometimes do the things that you don't really want to do, but you do them anyway? Do you want to know, you want to understand sort of the, the, the turmoil that's, that's going on inside of you? Paul says one of the diagnostic means for that is to examine your boast. For example, somebody says something or does something that makes you very, very angry. Why? Why them? Why is it them who has made you angry? Why do I say that? Well, for example, have you ever noticed that when someone in your family does something to you that is similar to, let's say, a friend or a colleague doing a very same thing to you, you're far more upset at that family member. They've done essentially the same thing to you, but because it's them, it frustrates you, it angers you, it, it gets to you. Why? Paul would say, consider examining your boast. Maybe your boast, you see, is, is that you have a great family or that you have really fantastic, obedient children that are very respectful and always do the right thing, when you're, whether you're there or whether you're not there. Maybe uh, your boast is that you have a really tight siblings. You and your brothers and sisters, you guys are really, really tight. And that thing, your great family, those really obedient children, the, uh, the, fam the, the siblings that never argue but always get along, that thing gets threatened when one of them hurts you. So when your children do something that disappoints you and frustrates you and maybe involves the police, or when your friends or when your siblings uh, bail on you and they're not, they don't show up and they don't do the thing that they promised that they would do, and now you're stuck on your own. Paul says, examine your boast and consider what it is you're putting your, your boast in. Now, I keep using this word boast, boast, boast. What is boast? What does he mean by boasting? Here's, here's the thing. What is a boast? We know it's a bad thing, right? We know parents tell their kids, don't boast, don't brag. Why? Because when we boast, it means we're exalting in something. It means we're, we're, we're speaking in praise of something. We're, it means we're, we're, uh, we possess something that is of extreme importance and value to us. It's this thing that matters greatly to us, and it's this thing in which we find a sense of confidence, we find a sense of pride, we find a sense of satisfaction in it. And why do we, why do we boast? We boast to build our confidence, right? We boast to, we boast to ex expand, reassure ourselves in order to, to, to let us know that we can handle things, that we can face life, for example, challenges, right? Think, for example, of, of a, a group of boys, you know, uh, grade four, five, six, something like that, group of boys, maybe younger, they're 
standing around on the uh, playground and they're talking and one of them says, you know, I'm the fastest. Another one says, so what? I'm the strongest. And then there's a third one that says, fast, strong, good for you. I'm the smartest. We need more boys that boast in that one, eh? I'm the smartest. Why are they doing this? They're trying to, they know that they want to impress and they want to, they want to stake their claim and, and feel that they have a place in the group. And so what do they do? They, they boast about something. They build themselves, themselves up. Or think about uh, like boxers, you know, or even, now it's UFC, right? People are into UFC instead of that. Uh, uh, you got the, the boxer or the UFC guy, they're in their corner and their coach comes up to them and says, their trainer says to them, you are the greatest. You are going to tear this guy apart. You're going to rip him from limb to limb. Nobody can stop you. You are unbeatable. What's he trying to do? He's basically trying to overcome the guy's fear <laughs> so that he'll go out and do his very best in the fight. It's the very same thing that in war happens all the time. You know, the, in ancient battles, as, as the, the soldiers were lining up to go to war with one another, the, the captain of the, the crew would say, by this time tomorrow their blood will run, the rivers will run red with their blood. You know, and it's always in an English or Scottish accent or something like that. Or in Gladiator, my favorite movie, one of my favorite movies, I should say, at the very beginning... You know, uh, I can't remember the actor's name, but he's the general of the army, and he says, what we do in this life echoes in eternity, and all the other, and then all the other guys go, oh, and they attack, or Braveheart, you know, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom, and then all these soldiers, they rush at the, the army that they're attacking. We all know that the world is threatening, that the world is difficult, that the world is sometimes terrifying, and we boast to build ourselves up to fortify ourselves, to take on the hardships, the difficulties that we're facing. Here's the problem, though. We boast in the wrong things. See, it's not boasting that's the problem. We were, we were actually created to boast. We're actually created to find something that in which to root ourselves and enable us to be all the things that we want to be and are called to be. That's in our createdness. The problem is, is that because we have rebelled against our Creator and we have chosen to be our own lords and masters, we're boasting in other things. And the problem is, is that those things never satisfy. They never pull it off. Paul says in verse 13, look what he says. He says, Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. Basically, what Paul is saying is that these Judaizers who had come to the Galatian churches and had said, you guys got to start observing all the laws like the rest of us in order to really be right with God, they were boasting in their religious observance. They weren't boasting in the work of Christ. They were boasting in their religious observance. They were saying, I'm okay because I am a very religiously observant person. I do the right thing. I am morally upright. But as Jesus demonstrated in the Sermon on the Mount, even the most thoroughly religiously observant person falls pathetically short of God's absolute standard. Have you ever thought about what Jesus says when he says, you know, it says, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look lustfully on a woman, you have committed adultery with her in her heart. Men, have you actually 
meditated on that and thought just how intensely, almost (laughs) from a human perspective, like how unfair, how can you shut off this part of who you are so that you're not constantly being a serial adulterer? Or what about when Jesus says, you know, it says in the Old Testament, you shall not murder. Okay. But I tell you, if you hate your brother or sister in your heart, you have committed murder. Murder. Not, you know, you've had a bad attitude toward another person. It's as if, Jesus is saying, it's as if you took the knife out and you plunged it into their gut and twisted it until they stopped breathing. That's what murder is, right? Killing another person. I just made it very graphic for you. I guess you could shoot them too. But that's what murder is. It's killing another person. And Jesus says, if you hate another person in your heart, you have committed murder. Is there honestly a person in this room right now? We're a room full of murderers. That's the implication of the Sermon on the Mount. Even the most religiously observant person, I, it just, look, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself because that's actually point two, so I'll get to point two, all right? Let me let, let you in on a secret, okay? As you get older, you get to a certain age where you, you stop being what's called a builder and you start being what you could call an archaeologist, You now probably have a little more life behind you than you do ahead of you in all likelihood. And you begin to start looking back on your life. And you start looking at the things you've done. You start ruminating on your accomplishments. And you sort of start sifting through things and and, and trying to understand your your life. And and inevitably, you come to the point where you realize, yes, I've, I've got some accomplishments, but I've got some failures too. I've got some serious failures. Maybe as a parent, you you think, you know, I had so many plans. When my kids were this big, here are all the things we were going to do as they got older. And you look back and you're like, I haven't done any of them. Or I've only done half of them. Or maybe it's not as a parent. Maybe it's as a spouse. You know, we were going to be tight. We were going to be committed. We were going to do stuff together. Don't worry, that's just the pet raccoon. Um, We're, (laughs) unless you're sitting underneath it, uh, we're going to be, we were going to, we were going to do stuff and, and you just, you never did it. You were, you promised to be the most nurturing, loving husband in the world. And when you first got married, you know, you got them flowers once a month. Uh, and then eventually it kind of became once every six months. And then it was once a year. And then it was once every five years. And now it's been a decade or more since you got your spouse flowers. And you realize you failed. Or you had big plans for your career. Or you had big plans for your business. In any case, you look back and you realize that you have fallen oh so short of your hopes and expectations even for yourself. And maybe you're, say, maybe you're saying, well, don't be too hard on yourself. You shouldn't be too hard on yourself. But listen, you cannot silence the voice. Judith Shulovich was, is a great writer. She writes in the New York Times once in a while. And she described this problem as the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. The eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. 
And that murmur, friends, the older you get, that murmur, the louder it seems to want to speak to you. And you will feel the crushing weight of your failure. Where do you go with that? You can't go back in time. You can't change it. So what most of us do is we try to explain it away. We try to justify ourselves, right? We say, well, you know, I would have been a better parent, but I had bad modeling in my own upbringing. Or I would have been a, a, a more attentive spouse, but I didn't get the kind of love and affection from my spouse that I needed. Or I could have been better in business or better in my career, but I had a couple of bad breaks. You know, economic downturn, 2008 really hit me. Or we blame shift. The point is this. Those are just band-aids, friends. If we try to deal with these things uh, this way, it, you're duck soup for it. You can't silence the voice. You will either oscillate between, you will, well, you will oscillate either between self-importance or between self-loathing. You need, the answer to the problem is you need to find something better to boast in. And Paul says, the place to find your boast is in the cross. Again, he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the second point. In order for you to boast in the cross so that you're not living this life of going up and down and failure, whoops, failure and success, riding high and being down in the dumps, you need to find your boast in the cross. How do you do that? You have to come to terms with the inevitable offensiveness of the cross. You need to understand that the cross is both bitter and sweet at the same time. First, it's bitter. Look at verse 12. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. The Judaizers are trying to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Why would they be persecuted for the cross of Christ? And the answer is this, because the cross is inherently offensive. We walk around with crosses around our neck, not understanding that we are actually wearing an incredibly offensive symbol to the world, not because, you know, we don't want to have religious symbols in the world and that's, you know, we were trying to be religiously neutral in a secular society. Oh no, it's actually offensive because of what it means. You see, the cross, like nothing else in the world, cuts us down to size. Listen to John Stott. He's the uh, quoted at the, uh, on the front of the bulletin, he says this, Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I'm here because of you. It is your sin that I am bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I'm dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness. Until we have visited a place called Calvary, it is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Hmm. If you have not felt the offensiveness of the cross, I'm not sure you really understand the cross itself. Because the cross, when you look at it, it tells you that you are a wicked, wicked sinner. 
and there was nothing other than the death of the Son of God himself that could cleanse you and pull you out of the depths that you are in. Now, this is what this means, okay? Let me try to hammer this home for us because very often in the church, what happens is, is you hear about the cross so much that you go, yes, yes, I believe in the cross. Yes, the cross is saving. Yes, I'm saved by the cross. Oh, Jesus died for me. And we don't really let it sink down into us and, and, and allow it to speak truth into our hearts. And here's the truth. I know that many of you are hardworking, attentive, intentional parents. You think very hard about how to raise your children so that they will be educated well, they will learn the difference between right and wrong, they will learn a good work ethic, they will get a great education uh, as they go off to college or university or whatever, and they will become a successful uh, member of society. And you are very intentional about that. And so you sign them up for sports things, you sign them up for extracurricular things like arts and music and that kind of thing, and you drive them all over creation all week long, sacrificing yourself. You haven't golfed in years, you've never, you haven't seen a fishing rod in ages, I'm not complaining. It's just, this is what you do for your kids because you love them and you want to have them start out life on the right foot. And you stay up late at night agonizing over where they are when they're out with their friends and hoping that they're, they're making good choices, etc. And when they fall down, you pick them up. When they're, when they're sick, you're with them in the middle of the night and you give them a cold cup of water when they're thirsty and you, 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 you take them to the emergency room when they're sick. It goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And here's what the cross tells you. You, my friend are no different before the bar of God's justice than the most neglectful parent you know. How can that be? How can that be? But it's true. That's what the cross tells you. Guys, you've known men who are unfaithful. They've cheated on their wife. They've hidden it from them. They've, uh, when they go off on work trips and stuff like that, they involve themselves in the kinds of things that, that faithful husbands ought not to involve themselves in. And you have been faithful to your, your spouse. You have loved them and you have taken care of them and you have uh, protected yourself from being, uh, you know, uh, influenced or, or tempted uh, by uh, other women. And the cross tells you that before the bar of God's justice, you stand in need of God's forgiveness to the same degree as that guy, the pig. How can that be? Is that really true? Yes. You have worked very, very hard and you pay all your taxes at, at work and your business, etc. And you know that Billy Bob over there who's got a really nice house on the lake and got a nice boat and got a cottage up north and all that kind of stuff, he has cut corners and he has taken so many cash jobs. And he has cheated the government and he's living high on the hog because of it and you have been straight, righteous, 
done the right thing in your work, and here's what the gospel tells you. Here's what the cross tells you. Before the bar of God's justice, you are on the same footing as that guy. How can that be? Here's how it can be, friends. It doesn't matter if you're drowning in 50 feet of water or 500 feet of water. You're still dead in the end. You're still dead in the end. And the cross is about bringing us from death to life. Now, that is offensive. That's offensive. You're good people. And the cross tells you, frankly, that don't matter. Do you know that? Have you experienced that? Only when you've experienced that, you see, can it be see, sweet. See, here's Paul's opponents, right? And they don't, they don't want, to, want to go into the world with that message. They don't want to go in the world and tell people, good people, that they know, look, you are, you are a wicked sinner deserving of God's justice and His judgment, and you need to repent of your sin. Because people will hate that. They will be hated for it, Paul says in this text. And don't think that hate means, okay, uh, you know, persecution and we want to kill you. It does in some contexts. Look at our brothers and sisters in other places around the world who, because of their faith, they're being targeted. Egypt is a prime example. But here today, even though it literally happens in other places, here today it means people will look at you funny and they'll think you're weird. Or they'll think you have very primitive ideas and beliefs and maybe you're a little uneducated. You know, you're not very sophisticated. Or maybe they'll say you have a low view of human nature and humanity, and you'll be marginalized because of it. But if you accept the offensiveness of the cross, friends, it becomes so sweet to think that he died for that, that he died for you. To be able to say, amazing love, how can it be that you, my Lord, would die for me? When you come to, to terms with the fact that, yes, you are more wicked than you ever dared imagine, then you can be opened up to the idea, the incredible idea, that the God of the universe would delight in you so much that he finds you and he loves you more than you could ever dare hope. He delights in you more than you could ever dare hope. Because in deli His delight in you is not dependent upon how moral and upright and how good you are. It is thoroughly and completely dependent upon what He has done for you in His Son. You know, I was talking to someone this week uh, about their, their conversion story. And this is their conversion story, if I, can, if I can do justice to it. It's much longer and beautiful-er than what I'm going to say to you. But basically, total depravity converted them. They realized that they weren't the person that they wanted to be. They had guilt over the things that they had done wrong and a lot of guilt over the good things that they hadn't done that they wanted to do. And they didn't know why they had this problem. And they discovered the Bible and they read in there, Paul in Romans 7 says, why do I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do? Wretched man, who will save me? Wretched man that I am. And then Paul goes on and he says that we're saved by the cross of Jesus Christ. And this person thought, there it is. There it is. And it became so sweet to this person because they found the answer and their life was transformed. Their life was transformed, not overnight, 
Part of it was overnight. And that's the thing. The cross, once it sinks into you, it has an incredibly glorious effect. Point number three. Again, in verse 14, we haven't strayed much from this verse this morning, but it's so packed. It says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me. Excuse me. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, what does that mean? Paul is not saying the world is now dead to me. You're dead to me. I don't care about the world. Or he's not also saying I'm, I'm dead to the world, right? So that I have no relationship with the world or anything like that. No. What Paul is saying is, is that the world no longer has power over him. He's free from its clutches. In other words, the worldview, the system of thought, the, the way of operating the operating system of the world that has been purged from his hard drive and he has downloaded a new operating system that centers on the cross. See, the irony is this. His opponents, they said, you've got to separate yourself from the world by following the Old Testament laws, following the circumcision laws, do all that kind of stuff, and, and follow this new way of life. But the fact is, is that they actually didn't do what they were trying to to do. Because the problem with the world is not all the bad stuff. What do I mean by that? The problem with the problem with the world is not that people are oh so wicked and oh so bad and there's there's destruction and 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 most and and horror and people doing terrible awful things all the time. That's not the the ultimate problem with the world. The problem with the world is is that it boasts in the wrong things is that it boasts in created things. It boasts in power. It boasts in money. It boasts in career. It boasts in family. It boasts in sex. It boasts in all these things. Boasting in the flesh. And those Judaizers who said, let's follow these laws and let's do the right thing and then God will love us, they're doing the same thing. They're boasting in the flesh the same way. Just from a religious perspective. And Paul, he could have boasted really, really well in all of that. You know Paul, right? He was a huge success. Even after he left Judaism, he was a huge success. He's a brilliant theologian. He planted churches all over the place. People flocked to hear him speak. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still reading his writings and trying to understand them. He's got a huge legacy. Paul says, I'm not in that system anymore. There's nothing in the world that I boast in, and that means that there's nothing in the world that controls me. I'm free. You don't leave the world. You don't disengage from society and from culture. No, it just means you're no longer afraid of it, and you're no longer controlled by it. There's a difference between a boat floating on the water and having water in the boat. The Apostle Paul says when, when you're crucified to the world, it's like you're a boat floating on the water. You know, you're, you're, you're not boasting in the water, but you're, you're, you're still on it. You're buffeted by it. You're knocked about by it. You're riding along by it, but you're not swept away by it. You're not, you're not deluged by it. You're not sunk by it because you've been cut off from its power and its influence. That's what Paul is saying. You're not weighed by the guilt, 
weighed down by the guilt. You're no longer afraid of the unknown future. You're no longer caught in bitterness because you have dreams unfulfilled. You're at peace, and you can do amazing, amazing, amazing things. You can do things that you had no clue you could do before. Let me close with a story about a guy named Eric Little. How many of you have heard of Eric Little? He's made famous in Chariots of Fire, okay? Watch the movie, awesome movie. Eric Little, he was a Scottish man who was a very, very fast runner. And he was slated to be in the 1924 Olympic gold medal, or sorry, the 1924 Olympics in the 100-meter dash and the 400-meter dash. And in the 100-meter dash, you win that, you are set for life. I mean, you win a gold medal in the Olympics, you're set for life. But certainly, if you win the marquee event, the 100-meter dash, you are set for life. And he was favored to win that event. But he was a Christian. And he learned that the 100-meter final would be held on a Sunday. And because of his views about Sabbath observance and Lord's Day observance, he said, I can't run in the 100-meter. In the and he gave it up. And people thought, wow, that's impressive. So he ran in the 400-meter race instead. And in the 400 meter race, he won gold and broke the world record. Okay. After doing so, so he's now the gold medal winner, world record holder in the 400 meter uh, race. He left for China to be a missionary with China Inland Mission. He said this, he says, it has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I have been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. Now, when he left, okay, the world hated him. The English people hated him. Because they, some of them thought it was treason. His job was to represent his country, the, the United Kingdom, uh, in sporting events and bring glory to Great Britain, right? Other people thought he was just nuts because he was giving, away and, uh, giving up on endorsements and riches and all that kind of stuff. And he went to China and he became a missionary. And he made a, took incredible risks because while he was there, World War, I, or World War II began and the Japanese invaded China. And at one point, he took his wife, pregnant wife, and two daughters, and he sent them off to live in Canada, actually, in Toronto, while he remained in China, and he actually was imprisoned in a work camp with a famous a biblical scholar by the name of Langdon Gilkey. And Langdon Gilkey remembered Eric Little and wrote about him during this uh, time in this work camp. And they said that this guy, he said, Langdon Gilkey said that this guy was like a an absolute living saint, said that he was poised and he was calm and he was at peace throughout the entire time of the, the occupation when they were in this work camp, this Japanese work camp in China. He, he said that the other uh, prisoners would come to see Eric Little with their problems and he would counsel them and he would pray with them and he would preach sermons to them on Sundays in the work camp. And then he died suddenly of a brain aneurysm. And Langdon Gilkey described how the entire camp mourned, including the prisoner guards, mourned at the passing of Eric Little. Now here's the thing. Eric Little won the gold medal in the 400 meter in the 1924 Olympics. 
Had he not gone to China, he might have been famous for a decade. But let's face it, do you know who won the 100-meter final in the 1924 Olympics, if you have not seen the movie? You don't, right? Who do you know about right now? Usain Bolt? Here's the point. That, that legacy, the, the athletic legacy is something that is here today and gone tomorrow. But this guy's legacy of faith, it continues decades after his death and it is a story that will continue to be told for years. But even that doesn't matter. Because one day he will be forgotten in this world. But he's not forgotten for eternity. He stands before his king who says, well done, good and faithful servant. See, my point is this. From the perspective of the world, the story of Eric Little is a tragedy. Man gives up potential glory for mission work in China, family sent to Canada, separated from them for years, dies in work camp. <laughs> Bad story. But if you've been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to you, it makes tremendous sense. It's the only way it makes tremendous sense. Because the reward is in heaven. And so I'll close with this quote from J.C. Ryle, another good Anglican. John Stott's a good Anglican, so is J.C. Ryle. He says, let us never doubt for a moment that the preaching of Christ crucified, the old story of his blood, righteousness, and substitution is enough for all the spiritual necessities of all mankind. It is not worn out. It is not obsolete. It has not lost its power. We need nothing new, nothing more broad and kind, nothing more intellectual, nothing more effectual. We need nothing, excuse me, we need nothing but the true bread of life distributed faithfully among starving souls. Let men sneer or ridicule as they will. Nothing else can do good in this sinful world. No other teaching can fill hungry consciences and give them peace. We are all in a wilderness. We must feed on Christ crucified and the atonement made by his death. Or we shall die in our sins. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving your Son Christ crucified so that we need not die in our sins. Enable us to trust in him. Enable us to hold fast to him. Enable us to boast in him. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.